Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies, fall is here. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a local nonprofit on a pre-arrest diversion initiative called PAD. There is a way to connect with those officers And instead of having folks go into the criminal legal system, connect them to services and resources. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, this. There has been an uptick in crime across the country. So we have seen an increase in violent crime and aggravated assault in the city of Atlanta. We are well aware of that and will continue to address that. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms held a press conference this morning, fielding questions from reporters. WAB News will bring you more of what Mayor Bottoms had to say later today during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burrs. In other news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp once again is extending the state's COVID-19 restrictions and a public health state of emergency. Now, the governor also changed his orders to allow restaurants and bar workers diagnosed with COVID-19 once they've been symptom-free without medication for 24 hours. The public health emergency runs until November 9th. But Georgia now is the 10th state to reach 7,000 deaths due to the coronavirus. To be exact, 7,021 deaths have been recorded since March. And we should note public health experts agree these fatality estimates are undercounts. And most of those deaths have been among folks 60 and older. And the state data shows non-white Georgians account for a majority of the cases among folks 60 and younger. 318,026 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. 28,522 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,269 were ICU admissions. As always, this information comes from the State Department of Public Health. Now, today also marks the 96th birthday of former president and Georgia governor Jimmy Carter. President Carter is the oldest living former president and the only one to reach this age. Mr. Carter reportedly plans to celebrate today at his home in Plains, Georgia, with his wife of 74 years, Rosalind. Happy birthday, sir. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. On yesterday's edition of the program, I spoke with Dr. Angel Cabrera. He's president of the Georgia Institute of Technology right here in Atlanta. Now, Georgia Tech recently announced changes to its spring 2021 academic calendar, including a delayed start date and a no week-long spring break. Sorry. This decision is one of many changes Georgia Tech has made, like many institutions, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's where part two of our conversation with President Cabrera picks up. You know, I I am an optimist. And 
as hard as it has been and as hard as it continues to be, we also have seen the best of people, people stepping up, um, faculty who immediately pivoted their research to start finding solutions to the big problems and questions that we were facing. We had mechanical engineers designing PPE when there was none to go around. And, and we had um, biologists uh, working on new treatments. And we had our own faculty come together to create a, a pretty massive um, surveillance testing system to keep our community, uh, our community safe. Our faculty, our staff, people volunteering, people bringing the best that they had. Our faculty all massively switching their teaching to online in March of this year without without notice. I mean, I can go through the list, but but really, I I think there is something powerful about this crisis that has reminded us of uh, something fundamental about us as an institution and as as individuals as well. We're going to get into Georgia Tech's plans in a moment, but I also just want to get your thoughts on how this pandemic has exposed for some folks the inequities and the disparities, not only just in K through 12, but even at the higher education level, has exposed all of the issues with how folks are able to to get educated in this nation. Uh, you're absolutely right. And um, we, we thought... You know, in the in the first wave of the internet, we, we thought the internet was going to be this massive uh, tool to democratize access to information and to education. Uh, no more barriers; everybody would have access to the same content. And then COVID happened, and we shut down, and we moved to remote, and we sent students home to find out that your background and your income and the family you came from made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And if you were in a high income family in suburban Atlanta with your own room that you can close and your um, wide and, and powerful internet access connection, life went on smoothly. Mm -hmm. If you went to a different type of setting, maybe a rural setting or a low income family without appropriate space at home, without appropriate internet access, all of a sudden your circumstances were dramatically different. So to our surprise, um, remote access, instead of democratizing access to higher education, in some way revealed some of the underlying inequities. Layer on top of that, of course, the issues uh, that we have faced with the killings of George Floyd and, and uh, Breonna Taylor and others. And all of a sudden, we could not, not pay attention to those issues. Mm -hmm. And in our own community, they have really come to the, to the surface. We have had really open and, and even raw conversations among ourselves like I had never seen before. And I think for the better, I think we're, mm -hmm. we're becoming far more self-aware of what's working, what's not working and, and all the, the things that remain to be, to be done. So that's again, another, another aspect of 2020 that has been hard, but in the long run is gonna have a positive impact. Well, let's stay there for a moment. Uh, what role can Georgia Tech play in all this discussion and this moment we're having about racial justice and how do we move beyond, you know, the, the protests and how do we re achieve actionable outcomes? There, there's a lot that we need to, uh, that we need to do at Georgia Tech. Uh, for once, really the, the number of black students at Georgia Tech is still around uh, 7%. That's a lot less than the black population in our city or our state. 
uh, or even uh, nationally. So we have to respond to that and not just for a reason of, if you will, of, of, of social equity, but it's also a very practical matter. If we want to develop technologies that improve the human condition, and that is the mission of Georgia Tech, to mm -hmm. advance technology and improve the human condition, we need all voices at the table. If we don't have women at the table, if we don't have people of color studying engineering and computing, then it's going to be virtually impossible to develop technologies that, that really help all of us live live better lives and and there are countless examples of, of that we have some faculty and students for example looking at biases in machine learning and artificial intelligence models uh, even even th things as, as simple as face recognition software guess what if you um, have darker skin those models don't respond don't recognize uh, your face as as well as they do people with lighter skins mm -hmm. it might seem something not terribly important unless uh, you start talking about self-driving cars that need to distinguish whether something is you know is is a, is a light post or a human being mm -hmm. and uh, so so anyway they're, they're, that's just a, an example of, of what happens with technology when you don't have all voices at the table we need to do better as an institution so that being said, in addition to Georgia Tech's strategic plan, if do you incorporate that? Do you make sure that is somehow incorporated in terms of as long as you're going to be president, that this is something that the Institute works on? Absolutely. So this year, uh, we've been working on a new strategic plan for the next decade. Um, we did not let COVID uh, pause or I mean or derail that process. In fact, it was it was a, a process that kept us sane, thinking about the about the future. And the theme that emerged as central to uh, to the strategic plan is the theme of inclusive innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, we and and we want to have impact. We want to champion innovation. We want to continue to contribute to Atlanta uh, to, to be a, a hub, a thriving hub of entrepreneurship and innovation, but we want it to be better. We don't want Atlanta to be just the next big hub of, uh, of innovation, the next Silicon Valley or the next, uh, the next big center of entrepreneurship. We want to be better. We want to be a place with people of all backgrounds uh, find their way uh, to, to to advance technology to do to do great things. So um, that is a big part, and we have we have goals, and we will be uh, rolling out the plan. The plan, by the way, is not just my plan. Mm -hmm. I, I brought together the entire community, and we asked ourselves, what is it that we're uh, that that we want to accomplish as a community? And out of that came goals around expanding access, and how are we going to motivate, inspire uh, kids who are right now a mile away. Uh, from our campus in Atlanta public schools to mm -hmm. choose careers in science and technology? How are we going to convince girls who right now, many of them uh, believe that maybe computer science or, or aerospace engineering may not be careers for them? How do we convince them that indeed it could be a very exciting career for them? So, so we have goals in terms of access, goals in terms of completion, and also goals in terms of how do we make uh, Georgia Tech uh, as a community, as an organization, develop a culture with, where everybody can thrive. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Angel Cabrera, president of the Georgia Institute of Technology here in Atlanta. Obviously, we're talking about his vision for the institution and, of course, its response to the pandemic. Well, that leads me to this. Now let's talk about Georgia Tech and its response to COVID-19, because if the students aren't on campus, if the faculty and staff 
aren't on campus because of the pandemic, although you have virtual learning. Look, if there's one institution around here where we know that there's always hands-on in the labs and, and in the class, it's obviously it's Georgia Tech. Let's begin with what you all are facing now. You said we're going to have a delayed start for the spring year. There's no spring break. What metrics are you all using as you make the decision? I know that being part of the University System of Georgia, you have to follow that. But oh. So after um, March, it was clear we had to basically empty the, the, the campus and, and try to get our um, handle on, on, on COVID and, and try to understand it better. But then we spent the whole summer trying to figure out how to reopen safely. That, as you know, there are universities around the country, even in Atlanta, that have followed different paths. Some mm-hmm. uh, have remained uh, online and, and did not uh, move their students back in. We did. Uh, like all the universities in the in the university system, we decided we were going to reopen. Uh, and, and listen, if we knew this was going to last a month or two, then maybe my view, maybe shutting down is the right thing to do. Let's just all stay home. And, you know, in, in, in two months later, we come out and things are over. We have no idea if it's going to be uh, six months or a year or a year and a half of this. So our approach has been, let's do what we can to be able to reopen safely and continue to deliver on our important mission of education and um, and research. A key part of that plan, um, which so far has been working quite effectively, um, has been in our case, a pretty massive system of surveillance testing. Uh, so every every day uh, we we uh, we recommend and most of the students do it to test once a week and all employees, faculty, staff. Also, we all uh, test once once a week and, and we made it very easy. So, for example, we don't use uh, nasal swabs because uh, we know how unpleasant that is and people may not want to come back every week. So we we defined we, we created our very own uh, system. Our faculty found a way uh, to safely and, and accurately extract RNA from saliva. So you basically go to a testing site once a week, you scan your phone, you you tap your, your card, uh, you spit in a cup, you fill a little testing tube. The next day you get a message that says, most of the time, it says you're fine. Uh, come back next week. And now, now how do we not, now, President Cabrera, I know that you're going to tout Georgia Tech. Now, how do we know that your own testing <laughs> procedure is more accurate than the what most folks are doing? We are, we are, um, totally transparent with what we're doing. By, by the way, so our, our testing system is uh, is CLIA certified. So we've gone through all the uh, the certifications. We post data on our website daily. And some people, in fact, I get questions from other uh, institutions is why, why do you put this? Like, I want our community to have all the information. Mm-hmm. And what we have seen, by the way, Rose, is that our cases, as soon as students moved in, cases started growing. Mm-hmm. By the way, the data, because we have so much data, we know what fraternity house has an outbreak. We know that on the third floor of a dorm, we have an outbreak. So we can go isolate the cases and that way we can make smart decisions. Have y'all had because to do that? that now, have y'all had to do Pardon that? Me? Have y'all had to oh, isolate absolutely. a floor? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. We, we, have, uh, we have a whole facility uh, reserved for people who need to be isolated or quarantined. And, and at the peak, that facility was very full because when students first got uh, came back on campus, we had lots of cases. We, we had, uh, I think at the peak, when you do the seven day average, we had about 50, 58 cases on average 
Right now, we're getting one or two cases daily. So we're now at the same level we were before students moved in. That's why we, we feel very good about how things are going, although we're not claiming victory yet because mm -hmm. we're, we're halfway through the semester. But so far, things are going very, very well. Is there a threshold that you're using in terms of the population? What numbers are you were hoping to avoid that would maybe cause you all to say, hey, you know what, we have to shift to online only for a moment here. So we, we keep all sorts of numbers. We look, for example, at the uh, the rate of positive cases in our surveillance testing. Mm -hmm. uh, at the peak, it was at 4%. Now it's like less than 0.5%, which is, again, the level when students moved in. So that's that's one of the key numbers. We look at how full the isolation and quarantining facility is. We look at trends, whether cases are growing or shrinking. Um, we are in constant conversation with Fulton Public Health, with City of Atlanta, uh, with the, the Georgia Department of Public Health. So we're in constant communications with, with everybody. But right now, again, our numbers are really virtually, uh, they're, they're, they're lower than they were when students move in. So we're so far away from, from having any sort of concern about having to shut down. In fact, what we're trying to do right now is to make sure that even some of the hybrid classes, mm -hmm. uh, if, if anything, we, we have an issue because some of the hybrid classes that have some elements online and some elements in the classroom right now, students are saying, wait a second, we're not getting enough face-to-face -face time. So we're trying to figure out how to get back into more uh, physical face-to-face -face interaction now that we know that infections are really under control. Well, what are you hearing from the faculty and staff. We've talked about the students. Okay, they some have said, look, we want more face-to-face in-class instruction, but also the concerns of your faculty and staff here. What are you hearing from them? What do they want? During the summer, people were nervous and there was so much uncertainty. We had no idea what was going to happen. We didn't know. We, we had worked very hard on all these systems. We changed classrooms, cleaning protocols. Um, we, we had to work so hard, but there was still a lot of anxiety about, is this going to work or are we all going to be at risk? The last two months have shown that virtually all the cases that we find are students, but 94, 95% of the cases are, are students. We have shown that you don't get infected in, in the offices with all the protocols that we have or in the classrooms or, or in the labs. So, so we're becoming much more comfortable. So I think the level of, of, uh, of stress and anxiety that we had um, before students moved in, now I think we're in a much, much better place. The other thing is that this uh, surveillance testing system that I just described, which is critical to what we're doing, mm -hmm. it has been developed by our, by our own faculty. So they, 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 they trust the system because it has been created by, uh, by them. So we're in a much, much better place. But there is still uncertainty. I mean, people have special circumstances at home. They're worried about uh, whatever can uh, can happen. But but we are in a really, really much better place. If you're just tuning in to Closer Look, I'm in conversation with Dr. Angel Cabrera, president of Georgia Tech. I want to focus on something else you just said a moment ago, and you talked about how just miles away, and maybe not even miles away, but just neighborhoods away, the impact that the Institute can have on young students, particularly young black students within the Atlanta public schools. Georgia Tech, obviously located in Midtown, your neighbors of South and West Side communities. You just announced plans for a technology enterprise park, which according to you all will, quote, contribute to the development of the neighborhoods to our South and West, which has traditionally been left out of major investment. For our listeners who may not be familiar, what does that mean? Is that you all are going to make sure that with this technology enterprise park that folks from those communities are somehow going to be involved 
in either from training or some type of initiatives or internships or mentorships? What, what will this entail? Yeah, that that that's the plan. You know, if anybody who's familiar with Atlanta and uh, any, everybody has seen what has happened in Midtown to our east. Again, a neighborhood that that we have helped uh, revive and and really has become uh, one of the most exciting, uh, thriving uh, ecosystems of, of innovation. We have seen the value of a research university like Georgia Tech, the value that we can have in our neighborhoods. And now we're looking, uh, we're looking west and we're looking south because those indeed have been uh, neighborhoods that have been left out of, uh, of, of major economic development. And uh, we, we are a public university. We wanna make sure we're an engine of economic opportunity for everybody around us. And that's why uh, we announced this very exciting plan. This this new park enterprise uh, park, which is our plan, is, is going to be entirely privately funded, mm-hmm. and it's going to focus on life sciences, biomedical engineering, and in, in advances in in that space. And that type of work, uh, that type of of, of research, uh, creates very good paying, well well paying jobs. Not not just the the, the researchers and the people with PhDs, but even uh, lab technicians. There are all sorts of jobs that are created by those enterprises. And a big part of our vision is not just to create that park, but to make sure that we are doing everything in our hand to to train local individuals who who may benefit from uh, from access to those to those jobs. We've spent a lot talking about the institution, students, faculty. Let's talk about you for a moment. What's your leadership style? How would you define it? Well, you know, the in, this has been a, a an incredible year also of introspection and has, uh, I think, forced all of us to, to dig deep and, and, and to find what we have. Um, I think, uh, first of all, at a time with so much uncertainty, I've, I've tried my best to, to, to listen to all the members of, uh, of my community, even when what we hear is, is not the most pleasant. I have tried to, to listen as much as possible. I know that concerns, all concerns are valid. Uh, solutions may come up with uh, from, from all corners of, of our community. Uh, the other thing that I've tried to do and I've encouraged uh, our community to do is to be transparent. People may agree or disagree uh, sometimes strongly with decisions that we make. You, you, you mentioned, for example, our decision to cancel spring break uh, next year, which has been uh, not, not a very popular decision, but necessary mm-hmm. decision. So we're going to make decisions that are not necessarily liked by all, but we're going to be transparent. We're going to explain why we're doing what we're doing. We're going to be putting data out there for everybody to know exactly what we're doing. And then the, the, the last thing that I think I've learned this year is how important compassion is mm-hmm. and, and to, to approach some of these, these really tough puzzles, sometimes puzzles with impossible solutions with, with a sense of compassion about uh, how um, these issues are affecting everybody. There's been a, a year of deep, deep uh, personal learning. When we started the conversation and you talked about this extraordinary time that we're in, like everyone else, I've asked that question to the future then for what you want Georgia Tech to be and you know your vision for the institution where you met your lovely wife and you were a grad student. What do you see in, in the future for Georgia Tech? First, I believe that there's going to be a before and after COVID, uh, for sure. And and in many ways, the after COVID uh, reality will be better than today's reality in in several ways. For example, before COVID, uh, many people didn't believe that you could work uh, effectively uh, from a distance. And after COVID, now everybody has had that experience. Everybody has learned and everybody, all faculty members have taught from a distance. 
So just the level of innovation of how we're going to be thinking about integrating technology in our daily lives, we're going to see unbelievable things coming out of, of this experience. But also from a, from a standpoint of, of purpose, many of our faculty members through the last few months, they have had to think about how their expertise, how the research, what they do in their labs, how it can help us deal with all these massive challenges that we face as a species, as a community. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that that's really changing us. I mean, I've, I've seen faculty members really transform the research agendas and, and much more directly ask, how can I help achieve this, you know, the, this ma- massive uh, goal that, that, that we have? So I think in the, in the world post-COVID, we'll be more innovative. We'll be teaching and working in very interesting ways. And hopefully we will also be much more aware of the ultimate purpose of that, that we serve. But you also have to make some tough decisions as well as it relates to finances, budgets, fundraising. Everyone knows the tradition and history and legacy of Georgia Tech, like so many of the fine institutions in this area. But all the university presidents are still tasked with that number one priority, too, which is, you know what, we also have to make sure we increase funding for the research and all the programs. And also, you know, for some institutions, making sure that there's money for to help those students who fall on some hard financial times. I mean, I don't have to tell you, you know, when we get to this financial part, (laughs) here comes a big money question, Mr. President, is what's your approach to that? Well, first of all, we, uh, there is a short-term impact, um, which uh, the, the, the state had to uh, reduce uh, the appropriations to, to our universities, understandably, when um, tax returns were, were going down. I'm really hopeful that as the economy recovers, that will be, again, returned more to a normal situation. But immediately, we do have to, to deal with that. And there have been also a lot of costs involved in dealing with the pandemic. So there's a short-term piece there that, of course, we, we have to deal with. Georgia Tech is blessed with the strong financials, incredibly generous support from, from our alumni and foundations and other philanthropists, uh, but it, it will still be painful. We're going to have to reduce positions. We're trying to do that in, in, a, in a smart, uh, compassionate way as much as possible through voluntary uh, separations, and, and, and we're, we're trying to do that in the least painful way that, that we possibly can. Well, but, but very importantly, and you're absolutely right, the, the number one concern I have is how to reduce financial barriers of access for our students. Mm-hmm. In the midst of the, of the pandemic, our alumni came together and they raised funds. They created an emergency assistance fund for our students. We're going to continue to raise money for that. But a number one priority in our new fundraising campaign is going to be financial need, is to make sure that no kid in, in Georgia or in our, in our backyard who has the talent to be a great, you know, Georgia Tech engineer or scientist or business major or whatever, that no uh, kid uh, is left out because of financial issues. So that's going to be uh, our number one. So our our, our uh, alumni again have been incredibly generous, and I know we're all going to uh, step up to that to that challenge. Do you want to talk football? Not the football you grew up with, but the football here. <laughs> you, the, want, the, you, want, you want to talk about the team losing to Syracuse? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, I am incredibly, incredibly proud of, of our team and not just the football team, but the entire athletic department. It's been so hard. I mean, every day when I see our team play, the other day when, when we had our opening game against um, uh, Central Florida here on mm-hmm. our, our Bobby Dodd, 
and I saw the rambling wreck drive through, I, I got a little bit emotional because it's like, it's been so hard to be able to, to have some normalcy and, and, and to have a mm-hmm. football game. So every weekend when we actually play, when we kick off, to me, that's already a win. Uh, and, and of course, if we can then win the games, even better. But it's already been incredible what my colleagues have done to keep the, the, the student athletes safe and, and be able to play. The next two games are going to be pretty tough, Louisville and Clemson. But I have faith in y'all and your new coach over there. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. We have, a great, we have a great coach. I think the team and the coach is bringing the city and the program closer together. You see how we celebrate with great pride uh, our ATL and 404 and, and our roots in Atlanta. Uh, and I, I really hope the entire city rallies uh, behind us. Uh, maybe the entire city. I don't know about about my producer Grace Walker because she's a UGA alum. So. Well, no, no one, no one is perfect. No one is perfect. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Uh, Dr. Angel Cabrera, president of the Georgia Institute of Technology, or as we plain folks say, Georgia Tech. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. I really appreciate it. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. When explaining their mission, those involved with the PAD initiative will tell you this. The initiative works to reduce arrests and incarceration of people experiencing extreme poverty, problematic substance use, or mental health concerns. That's just a part of what they do. In fact, PAD is an acronym for pre-arrest diversion. And the success of this once pilot could mean expanding to other services and greater resources. And if you don't know what PAD is all about, well, we're about to learn more. Joining me now is Moki Macias. She's the executive director of the PAD initiative. And Carlise Newman, who is from the PAD harm reduction team. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Rose. Thanks for having us. Director Macias, I gave a very simple and brief definition, explanation of the PAD initiative. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with you all, what's the origin story? How did this initiative come to be? Yeah, thank you for that question. So the PAD initiative actually has a really beautiful origin story. We came out of a campaign led by trans and queer people of color in 2013, 2014, um, to, to really help the city consider alternatives and start building new systems of care for people, particularly for people who have long been subject to enforcement of very you know, low level um, law violations. Mm-hmm. And so where there was a recognition that for many people who are struggling to survive on the street, who may be um, not able to access our traditional social services because of homophobia or transphobia, or because of an insistence on, on abstinence, um, or an insistence on people, you know, swearing off uh, drugs or 
insisting on taking medication, you know, that for many people, there was the, um, the recognition that for folks struggling to survive on the street and dealing with trauma and mental health issues, that the only uh, real response was a police response. And so there was a coalition that came together in the, you know, 2014 or so um, that really started looking at other programs around the country and found law enforcement assisted diversion lead out in Seattle, mm -hmm. which came, which had come out of um, a response to similar kinds of policing in Seattle and had had a lot of success in involving frontline police officers to identify where an individual was engaging in law violations because of these survival issues and because of mental health or substance use issues mm -hmm. and really invited the police officers themselves to make a different choice. And so that was really, you know, the, the seed of where PAD began is this coalition of people that said we can do better in Atlanta and we can actually start where we are, which is understanding that officers are often the first people to engage um, and, and experience a lot of pressure to sort of solve much bigger social problems. And there's a way to connect with those officers. And instead of having folks go into the criminal legal system, connect them to services and resources. That model out in Seattle, were you all able to determine the success in terms of what that program was doing? Yeah, absolutely. And we were actually able to bring our Fulton County and city of Atlanta partners out to Seattle several times to really see the program in action and begin to understand that you know the the fundamental core of the program was harm reduction so the idea that we can make small positive changes with individuals in their lives and as they become more stable that really improves the health and safety of the community as a whole and so we were able to see that in action in Seattle um, and really hear the stories. You know, it's a very person-centered approach where it's not like somebody gets diverted to the program and they have to all complete the same set of requirements over a particular time period. Mm -hmm. It really is working with people where they are and making those incremental changes. And and much of what we saw for the success of the program was not only reducing the number of times people are getting arrested, reducing um, the activities that are causing those arrests, right, but also creating different relationships and different conversations among the system stakeholders about what our responses should be to these sort of public health issues. I want to bring Carlise Newman from the PAD harm reduction team into the conversation because Carlise and something that just talked about was these person-centered stories. And for our listeners, give us one. Yes, um, I can give you two different perspectives. We had a diversion um, sometime last year where the female officer felt like the guy um, did not need to go to jail. Um, he had a physical altercation with someone at work, but he also was a veteran. Mm -hmm. um, and I speak of him in particular because we've seen Im immediate success in him. He did not have to go to jail that day. She brought him to us directly. We spoke to him about the things that were going on, what barriers. Um, we found that there was some financial barriers, some mental health barriers. And we got him the services that he needed. And we were able to advocate for him to keep his job, which he did keep. 
Um, and that's amazing. You go from possibly being arrested to no criminal record at all, getting the mental health services you need, connecting you to vet services, and advocating for you to keep your job that you've been at some time and you just had one mistake in life. That was pretty amazing. So it's crucial then that law enforcement, in this case we're talking about APD, the Atlanta Police Department, that they are able to recognize, and we understand that sometimes in a split second that is hard to assess, but they are able to recognize and they can make a decision whether or not the individual or individuals need another, an alternative to whatever the, the situation is. And that entails the harm reduction team. We we go to roll calls, we go out to the precincts to talk to the officers, um, and also educating the community on knowing that we're a tool, a tool that they can ask for. Letting them know that when you know, police officers say, hey, what about PAD? They won't say, no, I don't want that. I don't know what that is. So a big part of the harm reduction team is going out into the communities to speak to both community members and police officers um, and building that rapport and getting everyone to see what change looks like and that it doesn't look the same in everyone. So we all have to be a part of that change by knowing, you know, we make mistakes and you might refer this person to us today and they might be back on the streets tomorrow, but we have to try together as a community to reduce that harm and get them to see the change. So when we talk about some of the social issues tied to arrest and incarceration of people, you all have said that this leads to systemic problems in the community. How do you get a community to also understand that when they, for example, when someone wants to call the police on someone who obviously appears to be unsheltered or who obviously appears to be dealing with some other mental condition or, or substance abuse. How do you change a community's mindset? Because for some people, they, they'll they just call the police and maybe not even think through the potential outcomes. And you, we all know what those can be. And either one of you can answer that. I think a lot of it comes from educating and report building. Um, a lot of us are scared of what we don't know. And some people might not know what mental health looks like, um, like a mental health um, breakdown versus someone who's using drugs or it's just letting people know what this looks like, know, letting them know that there's someone in the community that can help outside of policing. Um, and and once we respond to things like that, giving them some kind of follow-up so they feel like, you know, they have a solution or a resolution or someone cares about their concerns as well. You know, I, I think that oftentimes where this conversation breaks down is that it's either call the police or or there's sort of a um, minimization of the concerns mm -hmm. of like, oh, well, these are just minor petty issues. You shouldn't be concerned about them. And I think what we have found is that where we really make connections with community members is just acknowledging that people's concerns are valid, right? That if, um, if, if people are concerned about activities that are happening on their block or on the, their, the stoop of their business, right? Um, that it's, it is not a solution to say, oh, well, just ignore it because we don't have good enough responses, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, we want to say, you know, it is a it is a hard thing to see people struggling to survive on the street um, or who are struggling with mental health concerns um, or problematic substance use. And it does have impact on the communities that are that are home to individuals who don't have houses often or who are otherwise um, you know, engaging in some of these activities. And so I think where we where we really try and have those conversations is these are it's it's a human concern. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what we need is to think about what are the more 
um, effective responses, right? That we know that punishing somebody for the challenges that they're experiencing is not an effective way to actually address the concern. And we see it in the frustration of community members who may have used that approach for many, many years, right? Mm -hmm. They have, may have called the police over and over again. They may have gone down to court and advocated for longer sentences. And what they find is that people don't get more well, right? Mm -hmm. People do not get more stable by serving time in jail. Um, and so what will be the thing to do as a community? And it may be a, a, a long road and it may be a slow road and there's going to be twists and turns in it. But what are the things that we can do as a community that actually get people more well? Based on what you said, I can hear people saying that's great. How do you engage the community that I live in so that I am aware of that this is a resource that we can call upon? Yeah, I can speak to that um, just in relation to what we are, uh, our expansion work, actually. And Carlise, if you want to speak any more to the role of the harm reduction team in um, in building those relationships, please do. But um, I will say, you know, what we have heard many times uh, in neighborhood meetings across over the last few years is people saying, you know, I'm with you. I think that a lot of these community concerns are not necessarily, um, they're not crisis situations and don't necessitate police involvement, but what else do I do, right? Um, and so, you know, that has, we've really heard that over and over again. And um, this opportunity to expand is actually really in response to that and in, in response to the public outcry, the public will of saying, we want additional responses. We want additional resources in our communities. Um, and so actually what we are doing now is developing a community referral process. And so instead of only relying on the police department um, to make diversion referrals to us when somebody is already detained, we are also gonna provide the option for community members to call 311. So the Atlanta 311 non-emergency line mm -hmm. is already a line people use um, you know, to report potholes or to um, ask when their court date is. We're actually expanding to allow people to call the 311 line and report issues of community concern that they would like one of our harm reduction teams to respond to. Mm -hmm. So that's for us, you know, that's sort of the next phase of this work mm -hmm. is really broadening the resources that community, just regular community members can um, can rely on to address some of these concerns. If you're just tuning in to Closer Look, I'm Rose Scott, and I'm speaking with Moki Macias, the executive director of the PAD initiative, and Carlise Newman from the PAD Harm Reduction Team. And PAD, which stands for Pre-Arrest Diversion, is a local nonprofit that works with APD to help reduce the arrest and incarceration of people who are in need of resources instead of going to jail. And Carlise, you all rely on listening sessions as a big part of this. Yes, um, as well as we, we started targeting business owners in the community and we literally go door to door. Um, we, we speak to them about the work that we do, we listen to what their concerns are, we listen to what some of their solutions are. Um, and they have slowly been calling upon us to help with some of their issues in the community. So that has been um, really great to kind of get our foot in the door of what community referrals would look like, but then also being able to let people know that we're here um, and where we're moving towards. Now, do you all have a database of individuals so that it's easy if it's a reoccurring situation that's easy for you all to, for not only just record keeping, but also to be able to have a consistent and accurate 
almost like a medical transcript, if you will, for an individual? Yeah, so I'll say that we have um, we have partnerships with both the county and city agencies that are working on a lot of these issues as well, right? Mm -hmm. So we are um, a part of the Partners for Home continuum of care. And so we work, we use a shared database um, along with many other providers who work with people who are experiencing homelessness. So we are able to access information for individuals that may have already been connected to services elsewhere. So we rely on that shared database. At the same time, we are working closely with Fulton County agencies um, that are looking for data sharing solutions so that you know, we recognize that oftentimes it is the same individual who is accessing emergency room services at Grady, mm -hmm. who may be getting booked at Fulton County Jail or at the city jail, which is still open. Um, and so we are really looking to continue integrating that data so that we can continue to collaborate with our partners. So, Director Macias, are you all a part of Atlanta City Government or you, I mentioned this was once a pilot program, are you all still in that phase? Yeah, so we actually are a an independent nonprofit agency at this point, um, which provides both the immediate response to police diversions. We will be responding to community referrals, and then we also provide the case management services um, that come with our program. We work very collaboratively with city and county agencies, particularly the criminal legal agencies and the behavioral health agencies. So in that way, we co we coordinate um, regular meetings with those agencies um, and in that way so serve as a bit of a convener for this process that is owned by, by many different stakeholders. So where does the bulk of your funding come from? I mean, you're a nonprofit. Are you able to, are y'all eligible for funding from the city or the county or the state? Yes, we actually do have substantial funding from the Fulton County as well as City of Atlanta. We have some private foundations as well that support our work, but we really think it's appropriate that public dollars are invested into responding to community safety and wellness concerns, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we, as we expand, we are actually relying on a major investment from the City of Atlanta, um, which occurred this last budget cycle. Um, that will allow us to expand diversion services citywide over the course of this fiscal year in alignment with the Atlanta Police Department, as well as expand to community referrals through 311. What's the feedback been from City of Atlanta or APD in terms of your initiative, what you're all able to do, and the good, the bad, the challenges? What do you hear? So we have worked very closely with the city and county governments through the whole, you know, through our entire, um, the length of our program, and we're still very new. So we're still learning as we go. I think what we have seen is that there is a real need to continue expanding our options and continue expanding our alternatives so that we are not over-relying on the police department. And so that we're continuing to push forward the vision that I think Mayor Bottoms' administration has had for um, for a really sort of bold um, and, and important new phase in how Atlanta addresses these issues, right? With the closure of the Atlanta City Detention Center, hopefully imminent, um, you know, that's a big shift away from hiding people who are poor, hiding people who have mental illness, 
hiding people who are struggling with drug use. Um, you know, that if, if we do not build the alternative care systems, if we do not build the infrastructure and make sure that we have places that will actually serve people, um, it's gonna, you know, we, we need to be able to move towards that. And I think that within Mayor Bottoms' commitment to closing the city jail, there is um, a real opportunity there for that kind of investment. So we're very hopeful that as that continues, um, that we will continue to, as a city, make this, this huge shift, right, towards moving away from punishment as a response and moving towards care as a way to improve our communities and make them safer. What would you like to see the city jail transformed into? I mean, a commitment is one thing, but it hasn't happened. So how optimistic are you? And then what would you like to see done with that building? I imagine you all could really use it. <laughs> you know, we worked closely with Fulton County on the Justice and Mental Health Task Force for several years. And, and part of those conversations focused on having a place where there were co-located services, where people were treated with dignity and respect and could walk in the door and connect to many of the different providers, um, including crisis services. We don't have mental health crisis services um, through our public systems in Fulton County. And so I, I personally, I think that there is a real opportunity for the city and the county to collaborate on bringing those kind of resources um, into the heart of the city. And I think it would be a beautiful transformation of ACDC to see that happen there. So uh, Carlise, let's talk about the actual interactions with the police officers and, and what you have either heard or experienced firsthand. And Yes, I have, I've learned a lot working with um, AD, APD. Um, and there's a lot of officers who do support PADS initiative and they do see the need for change. Um, and you have some who are like full blown PAD supporters and they call us for any and everything um, and not just for divergence. Um, they might see someone who needs help. We've been called for a mother and child who needed temporary housing until they were placed and they called us. Um, they sometimes call us for food, for clothing, the, the smallest things. And if they don't know what to do with a person, they do call us to access for solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and we work through them with that over the phone. Um, we actually had a recent call from Zone 6 where the community was was tired of the same guy on the corner um, soliciting um, for money and harassing people. And they just felt like taking him to jail was not the solution because they did that several times. He's back on the streets the next day. And the officer called and said, we just need a different option for him. And we were able to place him into a long-term mental health facility where he's been for the past two or three weeks and he's actually doing well. Mm. Um, and that's what we're here for, to try to find a different alternative to arrest because even officers are seeing it's not working. Um, and if I had to give you something bad, there are some officers who just, they don't understand change. And because they don't understand what change looks like, they think it's just a straight line and everyone walks a straight line. And that's just us educating them and letting them know, no change is loops and holes and you go back and it goes back up and this is what change looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the barrier that we have as outreach is just getting those few officers to see that this is what change looks like. Um, and we just need you to see that. And if we can get them to knock down that barrier of what it looks like, we can get those few officers to call us as well. As we wrap up and I'll stay with you, Curtis, for a moment. What do you see, Pat, in the future? What would you like to see this this agency evolve into eventually? 
Oh, um, I see us in the future possibly at a at a point where we're able to actually respond with officers. Um, where we have that relationship, or even if they get that 911 call, they can say, you know what, I think someone from Pat needs to go with us. Even though we know it's an urgent call, we might not, we're able to make that decision where they know we're not really needed. Let's get someone else to step in and they call us. And how many folks are available? Is it 24 hours, 24 seven that you all are available? And, and how many folks do you have who can respond to a, an incident right away? Currently we are available 10 to six. Um, we have a team of four um, and we travel in teams of two. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are, since we're only in zone five or six, we pretty much respond pretty quickly. Um, and officers feel like sometimes they feel like they can get to us faster, so they might come to us. And for folks that don't know, Atlanta's zone five and six is? So currently we're operating in zones five and six, which is basically the core of downtown Midtown includes Old Fourth Ward and East Atlanta Village. Director Macias, what about you? What do you see, what's your hope for the future of this PAD initiative? Yeah, so, I, you know, I think that this spring when we had the opportunity afforded us by the city to expand, you know, our, our sort of long game became our short game, right? The idea that we can start accepting referrals directly from community members, I think has really opened up a conversation about what this sort of continuum of alternatives could look like. And we wanna be a part of that puzzle. We are not the only solution, but we see ourselves as part of a larger continuum of responses that really focus on how we can use harm reduction, how we can use crisis intervention, de-escalation, um, and support to really change many of the dynamics that we see in our communities. And so I see PAD being able to, on right now, at this point, be able to sort of pave the way for more of those conversations to say, you know, we are working closely with the police department at this point. We are also moving into being able to work more closely with community stakeholders. And if we can show that this approach is effective, then I think we can continue to really be a part of the broader um, imagination right now, the broader visioning that it will take for us to continue to build out those alternatives to care. And if community members who are listening want to know more about either the the number to call or just be a part of your listening sessions, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So we have been engaging community through listening sessions and through an online survey to get feedback on how the community referral process should work. So I would encourage people to visit AtlantaPAD pad.org backslash expansion. And that's where you can find information about our community survey. It is, we are closing it um, in just a few days. So I'd encourage people to take the survey, share with us what your priorities are, what your concerns are in this new option through 311. And there's also opportunities to get involved as volunteers or um, or to share your ideas overall. So if you can visit our website at atlantapad.org for more information. We really invite the community to help us build this solution. 
All right, Moki Macias, PAD Executive Director. I was also joined by Carlise Newman from the PAD Harm Reduction Team. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Compelling conversation. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.